Sorry, Seth. I'm messing with you back there. I think I had it on and I turned it off. So if you didn't hear me, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, as you're doing so, I just want to follow up on something that Pastor Justin just mentioned in his prayer. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that is true, not just for, you know, unbelievers in our evangelism. That's true in our lives as well. God promises to bless the reading and the preaching of his word to grow us and sanctify us as Christians. And so we trust that he's going to do that now through the reading and preaching of his word. Particularly, 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17. So follow along in your copy of God's word as we hear what God would have to say to us this morning. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please take your seat. I have the sneaking suspicion that you'll know these lyrics. They come from perhaps the most well-known hymn in all of the English language. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. And the author of that hymn, John Newton, for him, these were not just empty words. Neither were those just sort of a cliche, you know, that that Christians might speak about. You have to understand that that John Newton, he he knew himself to be a rebel of God. He knew as a a former slave trader that, 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 that this was true of him. He really believed this stuff to the point that he became so captivated by the gospel and the glory of God's grace that he actually believed that God's grace was amazing. And he actually believed that he himself was a wretch. But it's just at this point where I think we see a disconnect between Newton and so many that sing his song today. While Newton believed that human beings were wretches in desperate need of a savior, many who sing his song today are actually persuaded that they are perfectly nice people. Brian Abel Reagan captures the disconnect this way. He says, we are not bad, certainly not wretches. We have simply lost our way. He goes on, we are not wicked. We merely have a handicap, a dysfunction from which we hope to recover. But again, Newton sung of an amazing grace, one that truly saves wretches. And I want you to understand, that's really the flavor of our passage of Scripture this morning. 
In fact, it's really the flavor of the whole entire Bible. Grace truly is amazing. And in and of ourselves, we truly are wretches. But by God's grace in Christ, he truly does save us. Those of us who don't deserve it at all. Church, that's really what the gospel is. The gospel is, if if I can put it this way, the gospel is God's saving grace incarnated in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we will see this morning, it is through that gospel where God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, to begin to see this, I want to make sure that we don't miss the people of the gospel. The people of the gospel. Here's what I mean. Listen to how Paul describes himself. Listen to his resume in verse 13. What does he say? Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And and by that, Paul means that this is who he is. This is who he was before he met Christ. Or maybe to say it better, before Christ met him. This is who he was. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page, a blasphemer is one who defames, denigrates, or demeans someone. And that's exactly what Paul did with respect to Christ. He mocked Christ. He ridiculed Christ. Paul, in his unbelieving state, he had no patience for who Christ said he was or what Christ said he did. For Paul, Christ was on the same level as, say, the tooth fairy. And because of his blasphemous convictions regarding Christ, he was also a persecutor. And that means, as you probably know, well, he, he mistreated, he harassed others based solely on their religious beliefs. So specifically, Paul singled out Christians, or as they were known in the early church, those who belonged to the way. And he hated them. He hated them so much that he turned all his energy toward what? Destroying them. Which leads to Paul's third self-designation, insolent opponent. Another way to say that would be this. Paul was, by his own admission, a violent aggressor. He, He was a mercenary. He hunted Christians for sport. He woke up and the first thought on his mind was, how can I end this whole thing? How can I put Christians under my boot? And this whole tragic resume, it's summed up with just one word. And you find that one word toward the end of verse 15. Do you see it? That one word is the word sinner. That's what Paul says. Paul says that that, that, that's what I am in and of myself. I am a sinner. And not just any old sinner, but as the end of verse 15 puts it, the worst of sinners. That's what's meant meant there by verse 15's of whom I am the foremost. Paul's saying, when I look back on my past life, when, when I look back on my life, my present life, even right now, Paul says, I am, to use Newton's language, I am a wretch. Now here's the deal, church. In our passage, there is a fair amount of blending and overlap here. 
In other words, Paul in this section is talking about both his apostleship and his conversion. You see the apostleship side of it up in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, right? So, so he's clearly talking about how Christ called him to be his apostle. But by the time you get to verse 15, the scope has widened, hasn't it? Christ Jesus, we are told, came into the world to save sinners. And that's obviously referring not sp- simply to apostleship, but now to Paul's conversion, right? So while it is true, we are not apostles. You are not an apostle. I don't care what your business card says. You're not an apostle. But we are sinners. Let me say it another way. We're not verse 12, but we are verse 15. And so at that level, you have to see that if you can hear my voice, you share in Paul's resume. And because you share in Paul's resume, what you and I deserve is is death. Judgment is what rightly awaits those who sin against God by breaking his law. Sure, maybe you don't fit perfectly into verse 13. Maybe you are not a blasphemer, persecutor, or insolent opponent. But I'm sure you can very easily put your own triad of sins in there. And if you're struggling to do that, then just talk to your wife, your husband, your roommate. I'm pretty sure they'll be able to help you fill in that portion of your resume if you're struggling. In all seriousness, what what this means is that we should all be able to say the end of verse 15. And we should be able to say it without our fingers being crossed. And we should do it without just sort of mouthing the words because we know that's what we're supposed to say. No, the end of verse 15 is you. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I, of whom you are the foremost. And if that is not your confession, my friend, then we have a major problem. Or to say it another way, genuinely confessing those words from verse 15, that is actually one of the evidences of true spirit-wrought grace in your heart. This is what people of the gospel confess. We say we are sinners. We are in need. We don't belong here. Again, drawing upon Newton, we really are wretches. And if you are tempted to think that you yourself are a good candidate to be a Christian, based upon how good of a life you lead, based upon, well, the things you've done or the things you haven't done. If if you think you're a good candidate because of you, then I can assure you of at least two things, two things that are true of you. One, you have not yet been humbled by your sin. And two, you have not yet been amazed by God's grace. Now speaking of 
God's grace. Don't let the end of verse 13 trip you up. When Paul writes, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, he doesn't mean to suggest that because of his ignorance or unbelief, he was somehow innocent. Not at all. Not at all. Just because people don't know the full implication of their sin, that does not mean that they're off the hook. You're still, you're still guilty. And because we are still guilty, we are still under the wrath of God, we are still in desperate need of God's forgiving grace. That is true whether we know it or not. You might not know that the speed limit on Umatilla is 25 miles an hour, but if you go barreling down here at 50 and the sheriff pulls you over, your ignorance will not suffice. The same is true with respect to God's law. So then what is Paul getting at there in verse 13? Well, I think the thrust of what Paul is saying is this. His acting in ignorance and unbelief, it is proof positive that he needed mercy. In other words, to come full circle, it was Paul's sin that qualified him for the grace and mercy of Christ. This all leads us then to the purpose of the gospel. Let me ask you, what is the purpose of the gospel? And, and before you begin to answer that question in your head, let me warn you, there are a slew of wrong ways to answer that most important question. Here's what I mean. And, and, and again, please, this has to be, if this is missed, then, then the math won't shake out right. We've seen our resume, right? We've seen our resume. So here's the deal. The purpose of the gospel must address our sin. Let me put it this way. If our diagnosis is one that reveals that we have a horrible disease, then the remedy must treat the actual disease and not merely the symptoms. Does that make sense? So here's the problem. When we think about what's the purpose of the gospel, we tend to think that the purpose of the gospel is to address symptoms. But it's not. So, the purpose of the gospel is not, I repeat, not, mainly about giving us a healthy role model or an example to follow in this life. That is not why Christ came. The purpose of the gospel is not about giving us a code of ethics to live by. Nor is the gospel's aim to simply create happy homes, produce Republicans, churn out homeschoolers, or create civically responsible folk. Still more, the gospel is not about you and I having our best life now, or helping us feel better, or turning us into really nice, sweet people. To all of this, we have to shake our head. The gospel, dear church, it's not even first and foremost about making us savable. Well, then what is its purpose, you ask? Paul sets up the answer in verse 15, doesn't he? He writes, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That is to say, what is about to be shared, this saying... It is a key statement that succinctly summarizes core Christian convictions. 
Paul's saying, this is the purpose of the gospel. Verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the purpose of the gospel. Now that trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance saying, I want you to know very briefly, it's made up of four parts. What, where, why, and who. Let's briefly flesh those out. What, where, why, and who. First, what. What is the subject of this saying? And the answer, of course, is Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the Lord. We're talking about God's Son. We're talking about Israel's promised Messiah. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He's the subject. He's the what. So catch this. That means, by definition, that the purpose of the gospel revolves around Christ. It revolves around Christ. That leads us to the second part. Where? Where did this Christ go? Verse 15 answers. Christ Jesus came into the world. Church, this isn't just something that we're supposed to think about or talk about at Christmas time. Not at all. The eternal Son of God, He took on flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He became a man. He became a human being just like each and every one of us are human beings. Notice, Christ came into the world. He did not stand aloof from us. Notice that Christ Jesus came into the world. Your sin and my sin, it did not repel him. It compelled him. It compelled him by his Father's request and by the Spirit's empowering to come to us, to come into the world. But why? Well, that brings us to the third part. Why did Christ come into the world? Verse 15 answers unequivocally. Two words in the ESV. To save. To save. This is why Christ has come. As we've said, not chiefly to model for us how to be better people. Not chiefly to give us an example and say, be like me. Not chiefly to sort of teach us something new, some esoteric religious thinky-dinky. Christ Jesus did not even come in the world first and foremost to rid the world of its ills. But what does our passage say? He came to save. Such a reality leads to our fourth and final part of this trustworthy saying, and that is who? Who did Christ Jesus come into the world to save? And I want you to notice there's only one answer in our text. Sinners. Sinners. So this is the purpose of the gospel, for Christ to save sinners. And again, this will only make sense. The math will only shake out if you are keeping up with the drama thus far. Because, as verse 15 testifies, we are sinners. As Newton would teach us to sing, we are wretches. 
To pick up the theme from last week, and, and really all of 1 Timothy 1 thus far, we are lawbreakers. And if you remember from last week, the law cannot save us. It can't. It can't redeem us. That's not what the law is for. So as sinful, wretched lawbreakers, we need to be saved. Please hear me. That is our single greatest need. Everything else, literally, every other problem or or thing that we have going on in our life, it takes a backseat to this one thing. And this one thing is that we are sinners and sinners are under the judgment of God and we need to be saved. Full stop. Everything else pales in comparison to that. As our second president, John Adams, famously said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And while I understand what Adams was getting at, we need to be honest. Biblically speaking, we are not a moral and religious people, at least not left to ourselves. Remember, what's our confession? Verse 15. We are sinners. We are the worst of the worst. That's our confession. That's the point. So again, drawing upon 1 Timothy 1, and what we've seen over the last few weeks, right? So what I want to do for a second here is really try to make sure that we situate this text that we're looking at in its context. The the purpose of the gospel is to do for us what the law could never do. What we could never do. What your good works could never do. What your willpower could never do. You have to understand, this is where the false teachers in Ephesus went sideways. They thought that the law was a means of justification. They thought that if someone would just give them the rules and let them play the game, that they would win. They just thought, all I need is to know what to do and how to do it, and I can do it. But remember, church, the law only damns. It's Christ who delivers Left to ourselves and to our sin, we are guilty. It's only in Christ, not the law, only in Christ where we receive grace. Our own works, they leave us in ruins. But Christ can and does truly redeem. The law from Sinai, it scolds. But Christ from Mount Golgotha, he saves. What we deserve for our sin is hell. But what we actually receive from Christ is heaven. So I say again, this is our single greatest need. We are sinners in need of salvation. And only Christ crucified for sinners can bring about our salvation. D.A. Carson helpfully put it this way. 
He said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. Let me just say, thank God he didn't. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But then Carson goes on to say, but he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent us a savior. And church, what I want you to to see and to savor right now is that this is true, not just for Paul, but, but for all of us. Don't read this passage of Scripture as if it is only autobiographical, as if it is peculiarly related only to Paul. No, what you have to see is that you are here too. You are here in the bad news, but by God's grace, you are also here in the good news. And we know this because the pattern of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that the mercy and the grace and the salvation that Paul received from the hand of Christ, that same mercy and grace and salvation is meant for you. Paul's salvation, his conversion, it is meant to encourage us. It's meant to be a pattern for us. Consider verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as what? As an example to those who were to, here's where you turn up, to those who, you're the who, who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see what's happening here? You see, you got Paul, the blasphemer, the violent persecutor, the insolent opponent of the Christian faith, right? This is the very enemy of Christ himself. This is the worst of the worst of the worst. And what God's word is telling us is that Paul is something of a test case. In Paul's salvation, there's a pattern here for us. And it's a pattern that ought to cause each and every one of our hearts to sing. Because... God is telling us, hey, if I can save Paul, I can save anyone, right? If, if I, verse 16, echoing verse 16, right? If, if, if I can turn a terrorist into an apostle, then you better know I can turn you into a Christian, right? The, the grace, verse 14, that overflowed for Paul, it's the same grace that overflows to you. That's the pattern. The dam that was holding back the mercy and the grace of God because of your sin, it is burst wide open at the cross of Christ. And now you and I are washed and cleansed by that flood. Of gospel grace. Unless you be one of those doubting Thomases this morning, lest you be one of those hearing this and thinking to yourself, well, well, this is too good to be true. Well, put your eyes again on verse 15, doubting Thomas. This saying is trustworthy. You can rely on it. 
It's true. You can take it to the bank. This saying is trustworthy, verse 15, and it is deserving of full acceptance. My friend, don't stiff arm what you're hearing. Embrace it. Tackle it. And what are you hearing? You were hearing again, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, please hear this, sinners. Sinners, plural, not sinner, singular. My point, again, Paul is an example. He provides us a pattern. Paul's salvation, it proves, among other things, to demonstrate that Christ saves sinners. Here's the deal. You might be here this morning, and you're already a Christian. But you look back over your life, or maybe you look back over last week. Maybe you look back over this morning. And you might very well feel ashamed for your sin. And I get that. Because sin is heavy. And the thought enters your mind. Well, perhaps I have out-sinned the grace of Christ. But perhaps the gospel is just for respectable sinners. You know, those people that just sort of commit the okay sins, but not like the really bad, ugly ones. Nonsense. Nonsense. The gospel is for sinners. In fact, please hear this, because this is what makes the gospel so scandalous. This is what makes church people just go, eck. You ready? Your sin does not disqualify you from the grace of God. It qualifies you. And Pharisees hate that. Church people hate that. Because they think that they bring something to the table. They think that they've actually got something to offer. No. The only thing you bring to the table is your sin. That's what you contribute. Christ does the rest. I want you to know the same is true if you are here and you are not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus. Perhaps you are waffling over your decision to be his disciple. You, you look in the mirror, and you have felt the, the sting of conviction. Your coworkers, your friends, your schoolmates, your parents, they don't even know the half. But you do. You, you know what you've done. You know the things you thought about. Here, here it is. You, you know what you would do if there were no consequences, if you could get away with it, right? You, you know that. You know the evil in your heart. You know that you are not good, even though that's what you put on Facebook and everything else. You know that in your heart you are a wreck. You know that you stand guilty before God, and you know that because you are made in His image, and God's law is written on your heart. And so you know all of this stuff. And so when you put your head on your pillow at night, when you get real with yourself, when you quit medicating through drugs and alcohol and sex and social media and all these other things that dilute our thinking, you know that you're toast. And you think to yourself, well, perhaps Christ's arm is too short to reach me. And I would just simply say to you that that idea, that thinking, it comes with a hiss. 
My friend, the blood of Christ that was shed upon that cross, it is able to cleanse even the vilest of sinners. If you are not a Christian, hear me well. There is grace to be had. There is love to be received. There is forgiveness and cleansing to be experienced. And Christ offers it freely. He offers it freely to sinners. So flee to him. Flee to Christ because his arms are wide open for you. Remember, this is why Christ came into the world. Verse 15, to save sinners. This is why Christ took upon himself flesh and became a man. He did so for us. This is why he humbled himself before his father and submitted to the law of God. He did so because you and I have never been able to keep that law. This is why he went willingly to the cross and experienced the punishment for human sin. He did so because that is what we deserved. He, he did so in our place as our substitute. And then three days later, when everyone had thought that sin and death and hell had won, Christ emerged from the tomb. And by emerging from the tomb, he promises to each and every one of us resurrection life, glory, it can be yours. If you're not a Christian this morning, it's not just that you have to like understand this stuff. You, you, you do. I mean, you, 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 you have to believe it, but you have to do like more than believe it. You know what I mean? Like you can't just like, oh, okay, I nod my head. That sounds nice. What God calls you to is to renounce all of your own self-efforts to quit posting your resume and to actually rely completely upon Christ, who He is and what He has done for sinners. This is who Christ is. This is what He has done. This is why He came. Christ came to save sinners like you. And again, this is what makes the gospel scandalous. It is not your sin that disqualifies you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So it is your sin that actually qualifies you for the grace of God. You want to know the only thing that disqualifies you? This is true if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. There's only one thing in all the world that disqualifies you. You know what it is? It's your pride. That's what it comes down to. It's your pride. It's an unwillingness to think that Christ's sacrifice is At the end of the day, that's really what people are saying, isn't it? When people protest and waffle and question and doubt, that's what people are saying. And I want you to know, and, and I do it in my heart, and I know that you do it in your heart as well, it, it initially sounds sort of humble. It sounds like you are really spiritual or something like that. But really, when you peel back the layers, what you are saying when you doubt Christ, what you are saying is Christ can't save me. What you are saying is that my sin is too much. 
what you were saying is, well, he didn't do enough for me. I'm too far gone. I'm beyond his reach. And that, my friends, is actually the worst kind of sin there is. Because it is, to go back to verse 15, it is to suggest that Christ Jesus did not come into the world to save sinners when he flatly did. Which is why pride is the height of blasphemy. It's the height of blasphemy, even if you and I couch it in our attitude of pseudo-humility. Oh, I don't know. I've just sinned so much. I don't think God can save me. And we go, that person sounds so humble. No, you are proud. You doubt Christ. You don't think Christ can overcome your sin. That's not humility. That's pride. It's evil. It's the only thing that will exclude you from the grace of Christ. This is what the gospel teaches us, congregation. This is what is put front and center. Christ was born, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead, and now he lives forever. And because he lives forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He has done all of this to save sinners. He has done this to save the worst of us. He's done this to show us that there is grace, not just for Paul's, but for Ryan's and for you's. And if that is true, and it is, then what is the result of all of this? Well, we've seen the people of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, the pattern of the gospel, finally, the praise of the gospel. What I want you to understand is that the gospel, it redounds to the praise of God. It exalts Him, right? The gospel exalts the Father for His great love for us. The gospel exalts Christ for His life and death and resurrection in our stead. The gospel exalts the Spirit of God for the work of regeneration and sealing and indwelling. This is what the gospel does. It exalts God and God alone. Maybe think of it this way. If the gospel only sort of makes you and I savable, if it just sort of puts us back into the garden like we're all little Adams and Eves and we all have our own covenant of works, if, if all the gospel did was just sort of get this whole thing started for us, and now it's up to us to do our own part, let me ask you, would that really exalt God and God alone? Emphasis on alone. I think not. If we think of this whole thing in terms of a race, one that Christ got started for us. But then, on the last leg of the last lap, he passes us the baton and says, don't muck this up, dude. If that's how this whole thing works, can we really genuinely confess solely Deo Gloria? Can, can we really say glory to God alone? No, I don't think so. If the gospel isn't entirely and only and solely of God and God's grace, then at the end of the day, whether big or small, we would share in receiving His glory. And you have to understand, if that were to happen, the whole universe would implode. 
because God does not share his glory with creatures like us. So Christian, if somehow your virtue or your merit or your works or your attitude or your experiences or your determination or your faithfulness, if any of that in any way whatsoever qualifies you for grace, then while it's true, you might not receive the gold, but you would receive the silver. And again, that would rob God of His glory. Because there is no competition here. Even our meager faith, and can Christian people just be honest for a second? I do not have faith that can move mountains. And I don't think any of you do either. Most of us, our faith is quite meager indeed. And even our faith, we are told, is a blood-bought gift from God. <laughs> if your even faith is something that you don't generate, what are we going to boast about? What crown do you think you're going to receive? What prize do you get? God does it all. God changes your heart. God renews your mind. God opens your eyes. God unstops your ears. God loosens your tongue. God gives you faith. God justifies. God sanctifies. God glorifies. Dude, who do you think you are? We're just receivers. This is why it all redounds to the glory of God. Even our faith, even setting the alarm, waking up this morning, showing up disheveled and going, I kind of believe God, but I'd rather be sleeping in right now. Even that tiny, tiny, tiny faith is something God gives you by His grace. It's not us. It's not us at all. Just as the sun precedes the flower, so does grace precede even our faith to believe. So the point is, it's all of God. And because it is all of God, it results all to the praise of God. And that is why, my friends, Paul can conclude this section in verse 17 with a doxology, right? To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, and you too by your willpower. Oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, part of you and I growing in grace is you and I coming to realize what Paul realized. He was the worst of sinners. It's what Newton was finally convinced of. He was a wretch. It is what you and I must come to see about ourselves, that we are the worst. That's the bad news. If you take confidence, Christian, there is good news. And the good news of the gospel is this. There is grace in Christ, even for the very worst of us. Let's give God thanks for his grace. Our Father, we do that now. We humble ourselves before you. We bow our heads. We, we lift up our hands. We cry out to you. 
we do so from hearts that have been awakened, transformed by the grace of Christ. We do so recognizing our sinfulness, recognizing that the, that the closer that we draw to you in this life, the more clearly and powerfully we see our own sin. And we own it this morning. We, we don't brag about our sin, but we do boast in our Savior. We boast in Christ's cross. We boast in his grace. We boast in his blood. We boast in the fact that in and of ourselves, we do not belong but you have made us your sons and your daughters by grace and by grace alone. Father, with the help of your spirit, cause us to walk in this grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.